Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. Hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of the Living Open podcast on reclaiming nourishing traditions and European folk culture with Danica Boyce. Danica uses she, her pronouns. She's a pagan educator and coach, guiding folks to shed limitation and imperialism by reconnecting with pagan abundance, animism, and folklore. She specializes in religious history, folk song, and the energetics of holding epic, love-filled visions for humankind and the earth. How amazing. We love to hear it. Love to see it. In this episode, we talk about Danica's journey with paganism and folklore, shame around the life-sustaining magic of imagination and play, what it was like spiritually in Europe before Christian colonization, expanding our thinking beyond an orientation towards the purity of European nation states when we think about our ancestry, which I thought was really fascinating and cool, connecting with European folk culture, abundance and scarcity in cultural practices and innovating within cultural practices, Europeans displaced from their lands carrying the model of theft and control to America, long lineages of loss of culture, grief and belonging, holding people in gentleness, capitalism, exchange and trade, um, cultivating an abundance mindset in a not weird and toxic way, and a bunch more. I think what I really appreciated about this conversation is there's such a sense of holding people and holding ourselves in gentleness and with nuance and being okay with not knowing and understanding that that is a place that is generative and rich for change and transformation and creation of more of the ways we want to feel and more of the ways we want the world to feel for all people. And that feels really resonant as I was just doing my yoga practice this morning That makes it sound like I do yoga practice every day, which I really don't anymore, but so far this month I have because I'm trying to get back into it because my body really appreciates it and my mind really appreciates it. But my intention was around moving closer to acceptance and peace. And I think last year being such a tower year for me, literally, and yeah, literally was such a tower year. Um really brought up so much and there was so much shadow that came up so much trauma that surfaced so much to work with and I feel so much more deeply acquainted with traumatized parts of myself and shadow and rejected parts of myself and I feel like I have a lot more understanding around their voices their thoughts the things they say the things they um, the regular responses they have all those kinds of things and I think this year for me is really about what I just said about moving closer to acceptance and peace and holding and working more deeply with those things and learning how to be okay with those things and parts of myself now that I can see, you know, now that there's so much more knowledge around them and understanding around them is like holding those parts with gentleness and where I'm at with gentleness and how can I work with those to create some more peace and some more ease, um, so I can be more in flow and be more in 
the things that I want to feel and how that ripples out to into my relationships and everything. So a little tangential, not that connected connection, but that's what I'm thinking about right now. Um, and I just have one thing that I want to share, which is, first of all, the links to everything are in the description. And I mentioned an interview that I did with Megan McGuire, I think last year. Yeah, it was definitely last year. Um, that is definitely uh, relevant to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll probably like that one as well. So that's linked for you. Um, and also registration is open today for Holy. I do Holy seasonally. This is the winter round and I'm really excited for it. It's a seven week reclamation circle slash support group for ex-religious folks to create community and heal from the impacts of dogmatic religion together. So. If you learned how to not be you, not be yourself through dogmatic religion and are on a journey of figuring out how to be your actual self underneath the layers of conditioning and trauma and ways that you learn to cope that don't actually serve you anymore, I'm inviting you to join us. You can learn more and apply at the link in the description. Um, registration closes on January 27th. Or earlier, if the spots fill, there's six spots left of eight spots total at the time of this recording. So space is limited, not in a weird false scarcity way, but the groups are small and intimate on very much on purpose. Um, and that is why space is limited. So yeah, we start on February 1st. Um, so you can check that out in the description. And that's all I have to share today. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Danica and I'll be back next week with another interview. And I like to start the show by hearing about your journey. So I would love to hear about your journey with paganism and animism and folklore and healing and how it's brought you to this moment. Yeah. Wow. What a big journey. Um, <laughs> I just turned 37 a couple of days ago. Happy uh, birthday. A, thank you very much. It was a surprise to me. I I, um, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that's the number changes when you have a birthday. Um, and so I feel like I've lived like seven or eight different lives. Um, and I'm always curious when someone asks me this question, which one of them will ask to be spoken about that day, mm-hmm. which sort of way um, will weave the pieces together. But um, I think... I could start with, I grew up in the what's called the Pacific Northwest in, in the U.S., um, mm-hmm. and we would call British Columbia <laughs> in Canada, um, in the, in the uh, rainforest um, among grizzly bears and salmon and um, resource extraction uh, culture, basically. So a lot of alcoholism and a lot of television watching and... Uh, and just a, a culture that I really didn't resonate with, even as um, I felt the power of the the location that I was in, the sort of raw power of uh, huge trees and and dark, dark valleys <laughs> and like moss um, and endless water. Um, I felt really lost in it. I didn't have any way to to moor myself culturally that felt really powerful. Um, and I should mention that my parents were actually a bit countercultural in that town. They didn't, um, they didn't have quite the same culture. Um, we didn't have TV, for example. So I read a lot of books, um, and that was one of my main sort of, you know, ways of coping and of, of sort of absorbing culture that I didn't, that wasn't living around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
And I feel like that really shaped where I went afterwards, that just the feeling of, of isolation and loneliness that came from being in nature in a way, um, in this sort of like far outpost of Western civilization um, and not feeling happy about it and not feeling like I had the tools to actually beneficially relate to culture or um, non-human culture. Um, that made me just sort of go searching for that for many decades after um, and noticing once I did uh, an English degree and then another English degree in medieval studies and then like a teaching degree focused on indigenous education, I started to sort of piece it together <laughs> that we'd been that we really used to have like we as in as in white settlers in North America would have at some point in our history had a dialogue with non-human place mm -hmm. and non-human beings and creatures um, and that there would have been cultural contexts to celebrate and to relate to um, one another, for instance, like in a non-competitive way, in a collaborative way, and to relate to land as something other than, um, you know, uh, inanimate resource, which is mm -hmm. just the most depressing concept um, <laughs> that ever came about, really, like land ownership. Um, looking back is just like a sort of slippery slope of, of, of disconnection and, and violence. Um, and I don't think that slippery slopes are, are happen without consent. I don't, I know those people who's like, Oh no, if this happens, then everything else has to happen. There's nothing inevitable about them, yeah. but you can trace this sort of the history of, um, for example, enclosure in Europe, um, which happened after the enlightenment, the so-called enlightenment where, um, which was just a scientific justification for medieval Christian, um, imperialism in general. Um, so, <laughs> um, I, I want to foreground though, that like there's, I, I had a sense and I think instinctually as a young person, and I think most um, dissatisfied young people have a sense that there's nothing inevitable about the the disconnection that they feel and that there's mm. nothing inevitable about the violence that they witness or the, the competition that's, that's placed on them among their peers. Um, and yeah, it's like I have a rugged optimism about that. And so I'm always just looking for evidence of where we can build back that, um, that relationality between all aspects of reality and beingness. Um, so yeah, I started studying, I'd say folklore and paganism after my um, teaching degree that was focused on on indigenous tradition in the west coast of what's called Canada um, and thinking like there's got to be something there's got to be at least some scraps left of what was going on among European peoples since that's my scholarly background and my personal background um, and I started researching through um, this podcast called Fair Folk Podcast that I made for the last five years um, including some field research also in Europe about mostly folk song and folklore um, in several different countries. So we can talk about any, any part of that if you'd like at length. Um, but I just discovered that there's like a massive, massive amount of living and recorded um, rather abundant focused folk culture in Europe, mm. both in the pre-Christian era that's been documented and and just like in what people are walking around saying and doing and singing. Um, but we're definitely raised in North America to, to not know about that. Um, 
or to think that it's like silly or for children, mm-hmm. um, exclusively children. Of course, it's for children too, but uh, adults, <laughs> adults as well. And so you may notice a lot of people who are like, or I noticed anyway, a lot of the people that I resonated with growing up and later were people who felt ashamed about having interest in childish or silly things because um, there's definitely a, a belief in popular culture that that imagination or magic mm. or song or play or any of the things that kept us alive and connected <laughs> previously are are um, are shameful or embarrassing or just uh, spurious if that's a word that makes sense there yeah yeah so I think that's my story today. <laughs> How's that landing? Thank you for giving us one of the many versions. <laughs> um, I have so many questions. I feel like maybe we can start here. This is a huge question, but maybe just like big picture, whatever you want to say about this. What was it like spiritually in Europe before Christian colonization? Hmm. I would say um, that it was no no one particular way. In fact, I guess that's how you could define it. Is that like before Christianity, there was no one European culture of any kind. Um, there were just many, many um, diverse, uh, collaborating and intersecting and constantly shifting smaller cultures, um, mm. and they would. Yeah, they would grow and change, and they would have a whole, <laughs> a whole lot of different um, ways of doing things, and um, and a lot of sharing across groups as well. But mm-hmm. no one, no one centralized identity um, or or belief system. I think identity and system are both post Christian kinds of concepts. Um, people were just doing what they did. And that was, that is how we retroactively define pre-Christian religion. If you could call mm-hmm. it religion at all, um, is that it, um, that it was not organized. Um, and it was not like, it wasn't something that you believed or were as much as something that you just happened to do until something better came along. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that there was like, uh, there weren't so many dramatic, like, conversion narratives I'd imagine pre-Christianity because Christianity has such has such an emphasis on conversion that you have somehow changed utterly in your material essence by taking on this new practice or belief um, that's a sort of uniquely Christian idea so uh, I would say it's just it was very diverse and it was adaptive and it was um, it was cross-culturally sharing. Um, like one of the most, I just, I keep, I want to emphasize this because there's so many really rich discussions going on about appropriation right now and power imbalances and aid and that. And I think when we think about like reclaiming our European heritage, if we're, if we're of that background, we still think in terms of like nation states and we think in Mm -hmm. terms of like this really, uh, problematic, pure identity that like is not mixed and that like we could find some like perfect string of way back in time, but there's no, there's no such thing. And that like um, my project with the podcast is sharing different cultural artifacts and practices. Um, And so I'm always sort of slightly in hot water (laughs) in that way, like, because it's, um, it's not, it's not popular to right now take on 
cultural traditions that aren't that you, that you didn't grow up with personally but there are there are like large groups of people in the position of not having grown up with any traditional culture and a world needing people to adopt traditional culture again so i think um i think it's just very important to always be looking closer and closer and with more complexity at how cultural sharing um can be done respectfully and in nourishing ways because it is um impossible to stop first of all um it is how culture develops at all it's why culture exists um but it's also extremely adaptive and it's how we um i think how we will ultimately you know um rescue ourselves from western imperialism is to mm-hmm. is to uh to take away the the hierarchies and to and to start thinking about how we can collaborate um without without violence but but like yeah letting go of the idea of identity and seeing what happens in that radical vacuum <laughs> for a moment you know while also holding yeah. everyone gently and uh and seeing seeing what permission is offered as well i think we i think we forget that if you show up with someone in like say someone from a different culture you show up in honesty and genuine need with the desire to participate and the desire to contribute that you may find yourself welcomed into a cultural tradition without having to just take it without understanding it or without even being able to really benefit from it um so that's my ramble about that <laughs> sharing um yeah i just think it's it's a like fascinating sort of subset of this whole conversation about um reclaiming nourishing traditions as well um because Of course there's I I talk a lot about paganism specifically um and there's a lot of people who are practicing paganism and are using the same texts that I would use to to research how I might do that and um doing so with a very scarcity based a very exclusionary a very racialist lens and um and it's kind of amazing that you can take two texts <laughs> and you can have mm-hmm. two totally different effects with them so um I also yeah I just like to ask that question like how can we use this material in ways that are more nourishing than they may have been used in the past um or they may be used by another group of people who are less um intentional with them Yeah that makes me think of when I had someone Megan McGuire on the podcast um and we were talking a bit about like European folk traditions and she was talking about sort of that and how like doing work of reconnecting to ancestry and our ancestral traditions and all of that is not inherently anti-racist like you can use that in all kinds of ways um but it can be <laughs> it can be anti-racist and it can be nourishing um and it can be really beautiful and i think mm-hmm. i'm curious like when you're talking about these pieces around identity and not thinking about things in terms of like nation states and like the cross cultural sharing that might happen what does that like what does that mean for you when you're trying to connect with practices from your lineage or just european folk practices like how do you how do you work with that yeah uh that's a great question and i think it always changes <laughs> it's never i have no one fixed method for doing that but um i try to combine a sense of like awareness of my need so that it doesn't become like a like a thoughtless need where i'm going out and i'm sort of like a 
an empty box that I'm trying to throw things in. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, but like the same, at the same time, being very aware of that in a gentleness way, like really having empathy for myself as someone who is part of a long lineage of, of culture loss. Right. Um, and culture loss is one of the, is one of the, I believe anyway, one of the factors that's contributing to the antisocial behavior of, of colonial settler culture people <laughs> in North America specifically, which yeah. is again, where I come from. Um, but I, I also try to deconstruct um, what ancestry means. Um, and so like keeping, keeping my awareness of my emotional state. So I'm not like grasping, but also noticing the way that our, our sense of like who our, um, who our ancestors are, where we belong um, is very much shaped by modern genetics and by patrilineage. And um, so mm-hmm. we think that we belong to this one line of people, <laughs> like um, all with the same last name, um, all men basically. Um, and men who possibly like owned land um, or were considered like important people. Um, And there's a lot of people in our heritage who would never have been documented um, Mm -hmm. women who have children out of wedlock, for example. Um, And, and also like in my, my observation of indigenous cultures in North America, in the region that I live in among the Wet'suwet'en and the Gitsan that I lived in um, previously, they had a very big emphasis on adoption, cultural adoption, and um, folks who are like children or or other members of society who are adopted into a family. Um, and I'm not, I don't know deeply this <laughs> this tradition. So anyone, I'd love to hear if anyone has like corrections about this, but um, are just as considered just as much, you know, members of that community. There's no there's no question about whether they're like blood relatives or not. And in fact, um, blood relationship in North America has been one of the government's main ways of, of seeking to, to eliminate Indigenous people um, through these sort of blood quantum laws in Canada. It's called the Indian Act, and it's still um, happening. Um, it's, a, it's a way for, for Indigenous people to get status with the government, but then it also tends to wipe out their own like organic modes of creating community and belonging. Um, mm-hmm. So with that whole background, um, I don't, I have come over many years of thinking about reclaiming European tradition to sort of disbelieve in um, genetic heritage, having any particular meaning um, for your ability to belong or participate meaningfully in a culture. Um, I, it's, I almost, I've always had in the back of my head, this sort of like orphan test where I'm like, if your criteria for belonging um, wouldn't allow someone who doesn't know their genetic parentage to, to participate or belong fully, then there's something wrong with it. Um, and I don't know exactly always what it is that's wrong with it, but there's just something there that's, I think, a problem for accessibility and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also in my experience, like traveling to Europe, one of the places that I landed first was, was Iceland. And uh, the second that I landed here, which is where I am right now <laughs> in Reykjavik, um, I felt more at home than I'd ever felt before I spoke to anyone, before I even went into a town. I There was something like magnetic to the land in this place mm-hmm. that felt like, you know, warm and, and welcoming to me. And I'd always felt sort of like an exile <laughs> when I was um, in Northern British Columbia, which was like, 
you know, interesting. And I, I don't know exactly what causes that. And, um, and that doesn't automatically mean that, you know, Icelanders want me to live here. Um, but most of them don't seem to mind. <laughs> but in my experience, like with folk tradition, especially, um, most of the people who are carrying these living traditions that I've met in, in doing field research are not concerned about the genetic background of the people who they're passing it on to in the least. Um, they're concerned about your respectfulness and your enthusiasm, and that's about it. Um, so that's been like, that was very eye-opening to me because I, I continually went into situations assuming that I was unwelcome or lesser than, and people continually welcomed me and made no mention or appeared to have no thought about whether I was belonging or not. My belonging was not up for a question. Mm. Um, so that was, that's, that was like a big thing to me because I think I started this podcast thinking that it was about genetics like that. You had to reclaim the tradition that was yours so that you weren't stepping on anyone else's feet. Um, but when it comes, especially to not all European traditions, because again, there's power imbalances within Europe as well. You may have noticed mm -hmm. that like Eastern Europe has less status in certain um, cultural artifacts like movies um, than Western Europe. Um, but um, where I was going with that? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so what I just noticed, though, the more that I looked around is that in most cases, cultural practices, cultural artifacts are not limited resources that are going to run out if you practice them. They're not going to be destroyed um, by somebody using them. And even the people who like grew up with these cultural practices are innovating within the form. They're not, they're not these fixed forms that never change. They're always changing with every new generation. And so I think unless you have a very like obvious, it's always going to be aware of, but unless you have a very obvious power imbalance with the people that you are sharing culture with, it isn't necessarily so that you're doing violence or that you're destroying culture by participating in it. A lot of the time you, you may be preserving it because mm. traditional cultures um, in Western culture anyway, are quickly disappearing. Um, so yeah, <laughs> there's an abundance of folklore and it won't <laughs> run out by you uh, using it and living it, I guess is my, my takeaway from that. And that was a big revelation for me. Like it took me a long time. I was really afraid to, to admit that to myself or to anyone else for a long time, because there's, there's some real um, rigidity around it and like fear because there have been such, such horrific um, uses of traditional cultures that, that like were not permitted, you know, and I think primarily also land use is one of the main ways that I think that's often the root of, of our feeling of scarcity around culture is the scarcity of access to land um, and the, mm. the theft of land from traditional uses in both Europe and in North America. It was actually, um, it really blew my mind when I realized that this is like a long ramble. I've been rambling a lot today. It's fun. <laughs> it's great. I love it. I want to hear it all. <laughs> it really blew my mind when I realized that most of the Europeans that emigrated to North America um, in that, long, that like in the 19th and early 20th centuries were actually displaced from, um, they were they were peasants in Europe who had been displaced from their traditional lands. Um, and then mm -hmm. having carrying that sense of scarcity and that model of 
of theft and control, um, they went and did the same thing elsewhere, um, mm-hmm. which is super damaging. But it, it made me feel a lot of empathy for myself <laughs> to know that, like, you know, not all of my ancestors were just monsters <laughs> like from birth, you know, that there's this process of, of disenfranchisement that, um, that, that snowballs, you know, and it's like that hurt people hurt people until they have access to healing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's this process of reacculturating with nourishing traditions. So not all traditions are created equal, right? Like the grand tradition of patriarchy is not one I'm <laughs> interested in participating in. Um, but we get to choose what traditions we want to carry on and transform. And um, and it's it's always a risk to to adopt a tradition that you didn't grow up with. But it's a very thrilling one for me personally. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes me think of what you mentioned about culture loss and how so many of us have like this long lineage of loss of culture. And I have that in my family. Like I know my family has been Christian since at least the late 1700s. And I have all this information around like churches they were married in and stuff. And like Christianity has like a long lineage in my family. And that's not a culture that I'm choosing to carry on. And that is a culture that I actively, (laughs) yeah, that I'm actively choosing (laughs) that I don't want to continue and be part of. Um, But when you were talking about that culture loss, like I just, like grief is just coming up for me. And I think that's one of the most present things that I feel when I'm trying to connect with ancestry um, and just like a lack of belonging and grief around like those traditions being taken and replaced. And yeah, I guess I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about grief around that and belonging. Yeah. um, I have a lot of thoughts about that, (laughs) especially when it comes to activism. Um, because I'm, I'm of like a pretty privileged background. Um, I mean, I have my limitations, like a learning disability and chronic illness and stuff, but I, um, I do, I have had access to like a lot of education and I happen Mm -hmm. to be white presenting, you know, um, I find it a lot easier to, um, manage my own grief around culture loss by being, or at least it's part of the same process. It's like an infinity loop with having empathy for other people who are suffering from culture loss and misbehaving because of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I'm willing to be the person who's not mad for a second at like the, you know, the like bros out there who are being shitty Um, (laughs) because partly because I was trained as a teacher. And I know that if you have disdain for another person, you throw away any opportunity you might have of like helping them mm. uh, to heal and to become more connected and, and insightful. So uh, yeah. So holding other people in gentleness um, and giving myself permission to, to mourn culture loss. Um, and then just, I don't, yeah, just being okay with not knowing yet. I think is the main Mm. thing, like being okay with, you know, the grand pagan revolution (laughs) envision not happening tomorrow, Um, coming back to the okayness of, of what we have done so far and, and just honoring grief itself as a, as a catalyst 
Um, if it weren't for the massive grief and massive unexplainable grief it was for a couple of decades, right, that I felt um, I wouldn't have found um, the path to, to healing that for myself and, and so many other people. At least that's they, they report that the people who listen to my podcast and take my courses and such um, tell me that it that it really does help them and that they have healed a lot. Um, yeah, that they're like just remembering that there is no perfect outcome, that this idea mm-hmm. of a perfect outcome and of complete healing and of complete reversal or some golden age that has passed or will be is is a Christian imperialist concept mm. um, and that that like loss and darkness and violence and sadness and pain are parts of a complete world um, and that I, you know, I don't promote or engage in most of them on purpose, but um, they happened in pagan times and where there were more rituals for honoring them. Um, mm. But, but it's okay where we are and, and also all of, I, I cultivate the belief anyway, that all of the traditions that we need, we can create as we need them. Um, that all traditions are born out of a need and a, and a desire for connection. And as long as we mm-hmm. have need and, and grief, then we will be able to create new traditions and um, reinvent the ones that we want to keep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That feels so beautiful and so present I'm like connecting that to how even this year like I'm in this season in this moment I'm having a lot of grief because I'm not seeing my family for Christmas for the first time because of newly severed relationships and that I haven't chosen but I have need and desire for connection and just last night I did like a little new Christmas tradition with my partner and my cousin Uh and like we're like creating some stuff together and my partner and I are creating stuff together and they're culturally culturally Jewish so they have like a whole void around Christmas tradition so there's like all this space for us to like make together um even though there's grief there too so yeah the way you said that just felt really lovely and supportive thank you for that Thank you. That's really nice to hear. And I love, um, I love that about Judaism, particularly too, even just mm-hmm. cultural Judaism, um, or cultural Jewishness, maybe you'd say, um, that there is a place for grieving in Judaism that hasn't, mm-hmm. that has been held up and retained and that hasn't been disposed of as, as secular Christianity. Definitely. There's definitely a flattening of death in, in, in Christian culture, at least lately, I think the Middle Ages had much more interest in death. Um, but <laughs> Protestantism is is a bit well. I would say it's depressing on a lot of levels, personally. But uh, they're a bit depressing about death, and that seems to be the sort of milieu that that like cultural Christianity has has been shaped by, especially in the United mm-hmm. States. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's something there for me about how. United States white Christianity is also somehow so tied to capitalism and loving capitalism and like conservative politics and how death is also not something that is respected in capitalism and we're never supposed to have winter and it's always like growth season and growth time. Yes, definitely. Oh man. I have so many, so many things to say about capitalism all the time. Um, (laughs) 
I'd love to hear what your encounter is with that lately. I've been talking this whole time and I, your voice would be very welcome in my ears. <laughs> Around capitalism and death. <laughs> yeah. And Christianity, like what is your, what's yeah. your story around that? Because I think that's a, a topic that we're, we're aware, like capitalism is bad, um, but we're still like, as a group of people who are anti-capitalists, we're still working on how to heal that um, while existing within a capitalist system. And I think there's many ways. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just curious if that's been something you've been working with lately and what, you, <laughs> what you're sitting with. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm actually in a particularly difficult place in my relationship with capitalism and existing as someone who also needs to make money and has my own business. And I think my relationship flows a lot with those things and how I feel about those things. And I think something that is often present for me is shame around needing money, Uh which is, I'll just, I'm, I like want to say it's ridiculous because everyone needs money and that's just like part of modern life in this moment. Um, but it does feel that way. And I think, yeah, I think there's just something there for me around, um, needing to give myself a little bit more softness and compassion as I try to come up with answers that we don't really have still, (laughs) which it's not just me, you know, there's not like this like perfect model for how to exist. Yeah. Yeah. A human who needs to make money within capitalism, which we hate. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. like that part feels important, like a softening around that for myself as I'm like also trying to, um, yeah, ultimately just trying to get my needs met. Like we're all trying to do. Um, and there are lots of systems that make that really hard. I think I've had a whole learning this year also around making space for death and grief when I still need to literally work and make money and participate in capitalism. And that's felt hard. And it's also felt interesting. Like I've felt the ways that I've been able to do it, maybe not quite in the ways that I would want to. And I've made a lot less money this year, but I've still made enough. I'm still paying my rent and all of those things. Um, and I have been making so much space for working with grief and big feelings and just such a limited capacity, the most limited capacity I've ever really had because of those things. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, no conclusion, but that's the <laughs> ramble. Those are my thoughts in this moment. <laughs> Yeah, I really hear that. It's extremely um, challenging to watch a system um, actively work against uh, everyone who belongs to it. (laughs) Basically, even the people at the top are not benefiting on on one level, um, the, you know, spiritual, emotional level, that is. Um, And then, of course, that, yeah, it's extremely difficult. Um, I had a thought that might, oh yeah, something I've been thinking about lately that may, it's just fun. <laughs> I like to, I like to imagine like when I'm thinking about like, okay, if shame comes in around like selling something I made online, for example, and I, and I associate it with capitalism um, or I feel bad for, you know, inviting people to buy something that I made. Um, then I remember like that, that not all, for me anyways, this is helping. 
that not all um, not all you know exchanges are capitalistic in nature. That there doesn't have to mm. be anything capitalistic about how you are exchanging something. Um, like if you trade you trade something with another person, and you have this intermediary that's like a symbol of of the the value of the thing that's neutral, just money or whatever. Um, people have like trade is one of the oldest means of of survival and flourishing. There's nothing, there's no value statement about trade. Trade is just good. Trade's fine. <laughs> trade's awesome. Trade keeps yeah. us moving. Trade keeps like the blacksmith, you know, with, with food, even though the blacksmith isn't a farmer, you know, mm-hmm. um, I like to just think of it on that like medieval village level or like the hunter gatherer level. Um, everybody is trading all of the time, their, their unique skills and, and contributions and just presence. So, um, just sort of like allowing yourself myself anyway, momentarily to forget the, the larger system that like reflects on what we're doing, but like, so that we can just be people sharing with other people um, and not have to take responsibility for what, you know, massive governments and corporations are doing because there is a very large emphasis right now uh, on downloading responsibility to the individual. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's an actual, like really organized tactic that governments and corporations use to, to detract responsibility from them. Um, and so I resist those when I get a feeling like, this is all my responsibility and I have to change the whole world now feelings. Uh, I, I try to remind myself that that's not true at all. Um, yeah. yeah. And that trade is, is trade. And capitalism is is hoarding of resources and exploitation of other people on a large scale. Um, yeah, that's such a good point <laughs> about downloading responsibility onto the individual too. Like that, like the clearest example of that to me feels like climate change in the environment, where it's turned into like you need to recycle and not use a straw, and we're just going to continue letting like capitalism run rampant and corporations dump oil in the oceans and destroy literally everything but you have like these teensy teensy amount of control so we're going to make that like the whole solution to the problem and it's all on you and mm-hmm. it's like okay that's I mean that's something but that's not going to hit like that's not gonna no, it's solve the problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah I remember um learning about the carbon footprint concept in school too did you hear about that ever mm-hmm. I I don't heard think I learned that before. I know the term now. I don't think I ever learned that in school, though. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, do you know it was like invented? I think it was Shell, maybe. Uh, oh, no. I'm like, please say more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They created this metric for you to discover how personally responsible you are on a very small scale for destroying the planet <laughs> um, so that you would stop noticing how they were doing so. Um, and you, you would just eat, you know, uh, you would change your like very small, almost meaningless choices to, I mean, not that all of your choices are meaningless, but the, the choice whether to recycle or not in comparison to um, whether uh, this oil company exists or not at all is, is totally yeah they're different uh, in scale <laughs> <laughs> very different um, yeah. yeah so just whenever I notice that gesture of downloading responsibility onto the self or onto say our peers um, I become very suspicious and curious about where is this coming from and is there some larger force that might actually be trying to hide itself in the background here like mm. some monster like behind the curtain being like it's you it was you <laughs> you need to change 
That's uh, so helpful. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> that also makes me want to ask you about, because I know this is part of your work too, is around connecting with abundance. So I guess I'm wondering if there's anything else you want to share for people who are listening about cultivating an abundant life with everything that is happening with capitalism, with all of it. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, first of all, just be nicer to yourself and everyone else, I guess. <laughs> be nice. That's like the number one rule. Um, but what does that mean? Right. Be nice. I'd say being nice to yourself, um, first and intelligently, like being nice to yourself, meeting your emotional and spiritual needs before you go out and try to like make actions, <laughs> Um, is one of the most abundance oriented things you can do. Um, like actually respecting yourself, I think actually leads to actually respecting everything else, um, mm. which still blows my mind when I say it. I'm like, is that, I don't think anyone's going to believe me when I say that. Um, <laughs> you know, I still, I still feel like a little fear that someone's going to be like, that can't be true. You have to like be way, way more selfless. And like, you need to become tiny in order to, to help other people or like have it make a difference. There's a, there's like a real fear of selfishness um, in progressive culture. And I feel like we've really sort of downloaded the, the like value structures of Christianity and we're still really operating with them in a lot of cases mm-hmm. um, that there are like the ideas that there's good and bad people. And that if you do a bad thing, then you're forever bad. And that like mm-hmm. um, you could lose um, you could lose credibility with the world in some way or with the divine or that you were born shitty, like the original sin. Um, we still sort of have this distrust of one another. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it comes from distrust of the self that um, has been like bred in over many centuries, right? Um, in order to disenfranchise people from their land and their labor. Um, yeah. So I guess, okay, so just to like zoom out again, <laughs> abundance mindset. <laughs> Abundance mindset um, is the this is the root of how I approach everything. Um, and I, you know, you could make a little chart of like what sort of things fall inside a, an abundance mindset, but it's it's just basically like assuming um, that that things are okay <laughs> and that like um, that there's neutrality in the world and that there is mm-hmm. enough of things that there's enough of of goodness. There's enough safety. Um, and focusing on what, uh, focusing on enoughness of the self and of resources, um, and like adaptability and play and, um, like just generally optimism, but also divesting from competitiveness, which is based in the belief in scarcity, right? So even though we do have like, um, measurable scarcity in like, uh, allocation of land and resources in Western culture right now. Um, the belief in scarcity, I believe through history is what causes this, this actual material scarcity and Mm. investment in the belief that we're competing with one another. Um, like that we are, that we're actually like, um, on the ground one against one, you know, me against the world. I can't trust anyone. Everyone's out to get me. Um, like when I say those things, my throat starts like closing up and I want to like close my body and I'm like, okay. My body feels tight when you say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which even though like, um, sort of instinctually, we think that's like a powerful position to be in, to be like aware of all the possible dangers. It actually really makes us smaller and disempowers us and, mm. and disempowers everyone around us. Um, so when I think about abundance, um, 
I'm, I'm always thinking about it on many levels, right? Like I work in culture. And so I think about like how there is, you know, enough culture to go around and that we can figure out solutions to culture loss. And um, that like the more we share, the more we have, um, and that I'm going to be okay, mm-hmm. et cetera, um, no matter how pale my skin is, you know, and that, that there's no one who's born bad, no matter what their race is. Like, it's always, um, there's always like amazing roundabout ways that we come up with to like find, <laughs> but like, there's always new scarcity narratives to uproot um, because our brains are really good at sensing danger. And that's like mm-hmm. a really great, uh, you know, evolutionary trait that we have but it's been taken advantage of by, by, you know, um, dominating cultures and, um, turned to a controlling mechanism. So I think also, I, that's why I also think it's really important to work with abundance mindset and activism. I think abundance mindset is innately, um, revolutionary just considering the milieu that we're in right now, culturally, um, And then of course, like with regards to money, like finding ways to feel neutral about money, finding ways to understand that we all deserve money, including me, um, and that me having less money won't help someone else have more money because there's actually Mm -hmm. an unlimited amount of money. (laughs) It's just that certain people um, are invested in in convincing us otherwise. Um, And as long as you're not actively preventing someone else from, from accessing money, um, and you love to share money, then it's very good for you to have money. Um, I want my progressive friends to have so much more money than um, they often have. So yeah, that's kind of the big picture of all the abundance mindset stuff. I guess something that comes up a lot as like a critique, I, um, do, you, do you hear much about toxic positivity? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I'm an eternally optimistic person. <laughs> inherently I think (laughs) so um I feel quite on board with what you're saying about believing in all those things and actually you just blew my mind a little bit when you said um when you said that you having less money doesn't make anyone else have more money unless you're like actively stopping them from having money and I'm like oh right that actually that's that's true (laughs) yeah yeah. I feel like I have to pull myself out of that pit like every couple of days. So <laughs> I'm like, no, it's okay. It is. I'm okay. gonna like write that down for myself. <laughs> That's the thing, is like we've been taught that we're in competition. And I just feel like if if anything, if you could take like a one little like um tool, little crochet hook to undo the like tapestry <laughs> of, of scarcity, um, it would be it would be like looking at every single sort of um cultural artifact. And asking, does this tell the story that that we are in competition with one another um, as beings, as Mm -hmm. like different species, as genders? Um, And if it does tell that story, then um, it's definitely worth deconstructing. Yeah. 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 I found that. I find it. Yeah. (laughs) Talking a lot today. I'm really (laughs) chatting today. This is exciting. It's It's okay. I love it. I want to ask you the last question I always ask on this show. Um, And it's just because the name of the podcast is Living Open. What does Living Open mean to you? And what comes up when you hear that? Hmm. Oh, wow. It's, it makes me think all of the different, like little, (laughs) this is going to sound very funny. When you said it and I like checked in with my body, all of the little like um, sphincters in my body 
like I felt with the differences between them being open and closed, um, mm-hmm. not like wide open, like, like <laughs> pee on the floor or anything, but like um, when we have uh, like a, a sense of safety and relaxation, the the muscles in our body, like our throat, our heart, um, our like butt, like our vaginas. I think that's one of the ones we notice the most if you have a vagina, um, <laughs> that if something is upsetting, you you will sort of retract inside your body. Like, whoa. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what does it feel like, um, to like have those, those sort of places in your body that tense up and release, what does it feel like to have those release? And, um, I think it's, for me, it's like monitoring (laughs) the, the people, the experiences, the stories and communications that I encounter that make my body close up. Um, and those that make my body open up, and, and investigating why, and then trying to create more for others of the opening kind. Um, just a very basic physical level. I love that. I felt it in my body too. I was like, Oh, (laughs) I mean, I'm doing that all the time without noticing, just like clenching my body or something in my body is like tight. And I'm like so much of my work in myself too is just about like breathing and like opening in my body and just like relaxing a bit in my nervous system so yeah that felt good thank you yeah I also feel like that's the oh sorry oh no no go ahead I feel like that's also the answer to like the toxic positivity question that I'm always like keen to answer I guess Mm -hmm. is like noticing how um how things feel in your body and if there are places that won't open um, like respecting that and noticing and then seeing what grief needs to be released to make you a lot, like allow you to be safe, um, yeah. to investigate what is, what isn't, isn't easily relaxed, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, is a huge part of the process of like being honestly in abundance mindset and in practice. Yeah. When I think about say? the top, I was going to, well, now I'm going to say this and then I'll say okay. <laughs> about the toxic positivity question I think I think it was Miriam Cabo who says this but that hope is resistance and mm-hmm. I love that and I think it's really beautiful like believing that things can be more beautiful and more nourishing than they are in the world mm-hmm. I don't think that's stupid or toxic I think that if I didn't believe that why would I even want to do anything in the why would I want to get out of bed or create anything <laughs> or like you know like I think it's so powerful and it's so empowering to believe that things can change and be better and that we can create something new and different and more nourishing for everybody. And I want to believe that I will die believing that I feel certain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. I a hundred percent agree. I want to say like, hallelujah, without bringing in too much religious, <laughs> I want another word for hallelujah. <laughs> I'm like, the other word is like, amen. Yeah, right. I'm like, what else do you have? <laughs> We gotta come up with some. Oh man, um, this could be like huzzah, <laughs> huzzah, huzzah. This is an assignment for everyone listening. <laughs> Your celebration word. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. Can you tell everyone where they can find you and work with you online? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I have a podcast called Fair Folk Podcast that. Um, is is like five years of content that can be found on all the podcast apps um and that's about folklore and paganism and specifically focuses on folk song a lot of the time 
And then I also am on Instagram at danica.voice. And uh, and you can always email me at fairfolkcast at gmail.com if you can't find me in those other places that day. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. (laughs) Thank you so much. It was absolute delight. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon until then.